Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Reweal as he continues his sermon series, Grace Upon Grace. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Thanks, Bill. And if, if you guys have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn to Isaiah 55 this morning. Bill Riggs is one of our elders on staff here. Just appreciate you, Bill, leading us in prayer, and Kyle this morning, and preserving the, uh, the fact that God's house will be a house of prayer. Uh, both of you guys just did a, a great job drawing our hearts to, to Christ and to the throne. Uh, I want to make one quick announcement here before we begin, is that on September 5th, we're celebrating our church Labor Day picnic. Uh, so Harold is going to start picking people out of the crowd as you guys go this, uh, these next several weeks. We need a lot of help with setup and just a, it's a big barbecue for our entire church family. So you might want to make a note of that on your calendars on September 5th is a Sunday after church. We'll have just a big cookout here and uh, we hope that you'll be a part of that. Isaiah 55, 1 through 9. Uh, we've just started a brand new series on grace that Bill so eloquently introduced to us. And what I'm trying to do as we finish the end of the summer here and, and get to our fall kickoffs is just talk about these little nuggets, these stories of grace, primarily through the Old Testament, leading to the person of Christ in the New Testament. And there's a couple of reasons I'm doing that. One, one reason I want to specifically focus on some Old Testament scriptures is to debunk this modern misnomer that you've got this uh, wrathful, judging, uh, malevolent God in the Old Testament that just wants to smite everybody he, he sees who disobeys him. And then you've got this gentle, compassionate, graceful God in the person of Christ that's completely distinct from that Old Testament God. Nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, church history attests to the fact that nothing could be further from the truth. There was a, just about 100 years after Jesus, there was a church father by the name of Marcion, later proclaimed a heretic, for his idea of, of the God of the Bible being a, or the Christianity even being a dualist perspective. That yes, there is a, a judging, wrathful God in the Old Testament, but the Jesus of the New Testament is completely different. Never mind the three persons of the Trinity, never mind the unity of God's character and essence from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Marcion suggested that we should do away with the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures altogether. In fact, in his canon of scripture, he ended up with 11 New Testament books, and that was it. Some of the gospels that we have today aren't even in his list of 11 that made it into the Protestant canon of 66 books. Marcion was, was labeled a heretic. He was condemned as a heretic and, and therefore justly treated for such views. But this, this is not a modern problem that we're facing. This is an ancient problem. The other reason I want to talk about some Old Testament scriptures, and I think the best way to describe this leading up to Isaiah 55 is, is just to tell you guys a, a quick story. Um, have you guys heard of this guy, uh, Malcolm Forbes? before? Is he familiar to you? Is he still alive? Forbes magazine, he's still going. Um, Malcolm Forbes is one of these quadrillionaires uh, by the world's measures, the most successful person that you could ever imagine on the planet. Uh, finance connoisseur, just knows markets, knows trends, uh, releases a magazine, Forbes magazine comes out monthly basis and gives all kinds of financial insight. 
that you would want to know. And when he turned 70, just like all multimillionaires want to do, he decided to throw himself one of the biggest birthday parties that you could imagine. And instead of his party being at his town home in New York that was just a measly $20 million, he decided to fly 800 of his favorite guests, celebrities, and friends to Tangiers, Morocco to celebrate his 70th birthday party there. In fact, when they got off the tarmac from chartered flights for all these 800 guests, they were welcomed by a, a litany of bagpipers as they came to the 70th birthday of Malcolm Forbes. And of course, just like any great millionaire or Tony Stark figure that you would know, the most important part of any party is, you guessed it, the guest list. Elizabeth Taylor was on this guest list. Calvin Klein, the multi-million dollar designer, was on this guest list. He had every famous celebrity person that you could ever ask for. It is, it is so-called the 10 top parties and celebrations that world history has ever known. I want to bring up this party because um, it's interesting that the Bible also talks about parties. The Bible in the Old Testament keeps bringing up a, a familiar image, a massive party, a banquet. It's actually a, a marriage supper. You got a couple that just got married last weekend here this morning. This party is unlike any other party. In many ways, it's a metaphorical description of eternity that those who know Jesus will spend an eternal existence in a state of enjoyment like no other. There will be an abundance of food and wine at this party that will never go dry. And just like Malcolm Forbes' party, everybody wanted to know who was on the guest list, this party also has a guest list. But the people that are on this guest list are totally different than the guest list of the millionaire parties that you would see today. The people on this guest list are, are the destitute, the downtrodden, the cripples, the prostitutes, the social outcasts, the cripples, insignificant, both men and women. What's amazing about, about Scripture is that even these physical descriptions of, of downtrodden, broken people actually give us a spiritual description of all of our hearts who sit at the table of the Lord. When we read stories of Mephibosheth who joins the table of David, we can look at our own hearts and we can see that we do not belong at the table of the Lord. These stories are stories of grace. And every time we read about them, every time we hear about this eternal celebration, we can't help but think, that God has graciously invited us to his table, and that is the only reason that any of us have salvation through Christ. Isaiah 55 is no different. Let's, uh, let's pick up in, in the text here in Isaiah 55. I, I hope you found it. Actually, what I'd like you to do is turn back to, hold your place in chapter 55, and turn back to Isaiah chapter 48. I want to set the context a little bit for these little one-time hitters, it's, it's hard to get our, our place in Scripture, um, so just talk a little bit about where we're at in Isaiah. Isaiah 55 comes at the end of a major section in Isaiah, chapters 49 through 55. And up to this point in time in Isaiah, remember, chapters 1 through 39 in Isaiah are pretty much Israel, 
you're sinners, you're gonna be judged because you haven't obeyed me and kept the covenant faithfully. Once we get to chapters 40, all the way through the end of the book, the tone completely shifts. Now there's more hope and salvation, there's more promise at the end of Isaiah than there was at the beginning. Isaiah 41 through 47, Israel calls Yahweh, the Lord, to a covenant lawsuit. It's a covenant trial. They're complaining to God, and they say to him, if we're going into Babylonian exile, if another pagan nation is about to sweep us away, control us, make us servants in a land that is not our own, how is it possible that this could happen to us, your people Israel? Why have you neglected us? Why have you forsaken us? And so in the span of chapters 41 through 47 of Isaiah, God, as the defendant, simply says this, listen, this exile has not caught anybody by surprise, it's not caught me by surprise. This is for your judgment, because you have been unfaithful to the law of Moses. And by the way, I told you this was gonna happen way before it ever occurred. We get to the explanation in God's defense. He says, this exile is for your judgment. I have not neglected you, I have not abandoned you. I will always be with you. And the Babylonians are about to be taken off into captivity themselves because I'm raising up Cyrus and the Persians and they will completely annihilate them for the face of the earth. God shows himself to be true and faithful, even in the context of exile for Israel. Now, once we get to Isaiah 48, Israel hears all that, and yet they're still rebellious. They're still stiff-necked. I want you to look down in your text at Isaiah 48. Look down at verse three. I've got it on the screen for you. Isaiah 48, verses three and four. God, through the prophet Isaiah, says this, the former things I declared of old. Now, the former things here is probably he's talking about the prophecy of the exile, to the captivity of the Israelites. God is saying to them, I told you well before it happened, it was going to happen. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and that your neck is an iron sinew. Sinew is, uh, it's like a tendon in your body. It's that tough material that will attach a muscle to a muscle or a, or a bone to a muscle perhaps. This is, these are the difficult parts that it, to cut through if you're eating meat. Um, God compares Israel to a, to a tough tendon. It's just difficult to work through and, and to get around. Verse four, because I know you are obstinate, your neck is of iron sinew and your forehead is of brass. I've tried to talk to you. I've tried to get some things into your head. It just keeps bouncing right back off. You will not listen. You are hard-headed and you are a stubborn people. God told them it was going to happen well before it happened. Now, what do you do with a group of people, a nation that you've created, who refuses to listen to you, who constantly disobeys you, and does the exact opposite of what you told them to do? What do you do with a group of people that instead of worshiping the God who created them, secures them, and gives them an identity, they start worshiping other idols? Over and over again, they prove to be faithless. Isaiah 48 tells you what God does. 
He says, I'm gonna do a brand new thing. I'm gonna do something in Israel that has never been done before. Uh, You read about it, skip down to verse six. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, God says, hidden things that you have not known. What are those new things? What are those hidden things that they have not known about? Isaiah 49 through 55, the songs of the servant. Israel cannot fulfill God's mission that he gave them. He called them to be a a kingdom of priests. He called them to be his servants of righteousness and justice on the face of the earth. They fail over and over again. And so here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna do something completely different. He's gonna raise up a new servant, a singular servant. He's gonna raise up a Messiah that will do for Israel what they couldn't do for themselves. And so as we march through the the book of Isaiah and the the context here, getting up to chapter 55, God says, my servant will restore you as a nation, chapter 49. My servant will faithfully keep covenant where you have failed. He will be a light to the nations, Isaiah 50. But my servant will be rejected and killed. He will suffer at the hands of godless men, Isaiah 52 and 53. Finally, Isaiah 54, rejoice and shout, O barren one, this one who experienced death will experience life after death. And that brings us to Isaiah 55. And here's here's the options that are put before Israel. You can either remain hard-hearted and stubborn and stiff-necked and group yourself with the wicked, obstinate people or you can trust my servant. You can align yourself with the one who will do for you what you can do for yourselves. You will become a servant of the servant and serve me faithfully in the future. Number one, as we look through this text and get going, Isaiah 55, the invitation to trust the servant, grace, is radically inclusive. The grace of God in the Bible and in the Old Testament especially, Isaiah 55, turn, turn back there now, is radically inclusive. Isaiah 55, verse one. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now as this passage starts, you can't help but notice the abundance of imperatives. Verse one alone has five imperatives. Most of them are just repeated, come, come, Respond to the invitation of my servant. Buy, eat, drink, delight yourself, hear. Over and over again, there's just an abundance of imperatives. He's he's heaping invitation after invitation to come and join his servant, the banquet party of the king. Nobody will be able to say they weren't invited to the banquet into what the Messiah was doing. Everybody is invited, and you hear it just over and over again by this abundance of imperatives. Now, um, I've got a, most of you guys know me now long enough, you know that I have a little whippersnapper with blonde hair. She's my, my smallest Kennedy, and she's the greatest illustration for every sermon illustration you would ever want. 
She's seven years old. And one thing that we love about Kennedy is Kennedy loves a party. She always gets excited about a party. I kid you not, this happened uh, last year. We had Thanksgiving, usually people in Brandy's family's side of the family comes over for Thanksgiving. And we all do it all at our house and everybody comes together and Kennedy couldn't be more excited to have grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, they bring their dogs, they bring all kinds of people when they come with them and she is uh, infinitely excited. Thanksgiving, we have this huge family party. She loves it. We get to Christmas, and in Christmas, it's like December 26th. My family celebrates usually the day after Christmas just because there's so many responsibilities and stuff going on at the church here. December 26th, we have this, another just huge party. It's this end of the year celebrations with family. She couldn't be grinning more ear to ear. She couldn't be more happy than all of these presents, all of these things happening, all these friends coming to visit her. And so on December 27th, Brandy and I are woken up in the morning out of nowhere. It's the day after Christmas. Everybody's opened their gifts. They got all kinds of stuff that they can do. Just let mom and dad sleep, right? Kennedy comes rushing into the bedroom. Dad, mom, check it out. I started to make a list. And she starts reading this list on a notepad. And there's just name after name after name. There's gotta be like 20, 25 people on this list. Brandy and I finally look at each other. We look at Brandy and we're like, or look at Kennedy, what's going on? What's, what's the deal with the, all the list of names? She says to us, Mom, Dad, this is the list for my birthday celebration on March 20th this year. <laughs> so excited about parties because we all know the greatness of a good party, but we all know the importance of a guest list. We all know the famous people that come to the famous parties. We all know the people that we want to come to our parties. I want you to look, it's, Isaiah 55 is, is interesting because it includes a guest list, descriptions of who's invited to the biggest party and the biggest banquet that there will ever be. The irony of, of this, of course, is that all the right people on the guest list seem to be the wrong types of people. Did you notice that? Look down at Isaiah 55, verse one. Come everyone who thirsts. This guest list, guest list first of all, it's, it's massive. It's everyone is invited to this guest list. In fact, the only condition is that, at least for this first group of people, that you have to have a life-threatening thirst to come to the party and to this banquet of the king. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has money, come, buy and eat. Who else is invited to this party? The poor are invited. People who need food and the hungry are invited. The people that come to the party of the king seem to be all the wrong types of people. And yet that's exactly who God wants at his banquet. This is not just a physical description, this is a spiritual description of the heart. And we get to verse two, and it's, it's almost like, we kind of ask ourselves this question. Did Isaiah write this for Americans in a prosperous nation? You guys catch this? Verse two. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Y'all uh, ever heard of this singer? He's a little bit popular. His name is Prince. 
It's got some interesting lyrics on a very famous song. Probably heard it before. 2000, zero, zero, party over. Oops, out of time. Tonight we're gonna party like it's 1999. Prince knew that the, the pleasure of a party was, was great. It was joyful. But it ultimately wouldn't last. The world's parties will all expire. They will all come to an end. Later on, he says, I was dreaming when I wrote this, so sue me if I go too fast, because life is just a parties, and parties weren't made to last. Interesting perspective, worldly perspective. First, Prince was a bad theologian. There is a party that's made to last forever into eternity. But second, he never got to the end of verse 2 in Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? You labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Listen, listenly. This is an infinitive absolute. It's two words with the same root repeated for emphasis. One of them, it's all your translations will say something a little bit different because it's so hard to translate. Uh, usually one people, most people translate a verb as an adverb to make this work. Listen diligently. Listen, listenly. Open your ears. Make sure if you don't hear anything else, you listen to this very thing that I'm about to tell you. Listen to me. Listen to the invitation of salvation. Listen to grace. Everybody is invited to this party. Everybody, without exception, is invited. But you have to listen. You've got to slow down your life enough from the humdrum of everyday existence and listen to the invitation of grace and to the invitation of salvation. You really need to open your ears, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, and listen. Delight yourself. Listen to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Don't be so stiff-necked. Turn your neck and listen to the voice of God. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now this invitation of God comes with a reference to a, a very famous figure in the, in the life of Israel, King David. Whatever this invitation, this banquet is to, it's gonna be directly associated with a promise that was given from God to David, the true king that somebody from his lineage, a descendant of David, will sit on the royal throne of Jerusalem in Israel forever and ever, and he will rule his people with righteousness and justice. This is the banquet that Isaiah is talking about. This is the invitation that is given in, in the prophet of Isaiah. Grace is number one. It is radically inclusive. It is radically inclusive to those who will simply listen and trust God. Number two. Grace is deeply personal. Look at verses four and five. Behold, I made him, and you might make a, a special reference to that pronoun there. Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, at first, when you read verse four, you're inclined to think that the pronouns refer to David. After all, he's the last specific antecedent 
who is mentioned in the context before this. Trace your pronouns. Him, we're thinking it's David. Then you get to verse five, and you'll notice an obvious and emphatic change in pronouns. Now we've moved from third person singular references, perhaps, to second person references. Now we're not talking necessarily just about David. Now we could be talking about somebody that is completely different. There's an obvious and emphatic change. In Hebrew, you don't have to add the pronouns to the verbs, but every single verb mentioned in verse five specifically gives the pronoun for emphasis and for effect. God is drawing our attention to this person who's related to David. If verse five was referring to David, it would have used third person pronouns, he, him, all you have is second pronouns, second person, singular use. Uh, Oswald has a great commentary on the, on the book of Isaiah. Here's what he says. In earlier verses, where the reference, seems, reference to Israel seems unmistakable, the number is plural. All the references are plural. But in verse five, it is everywhere singular. The possibility that God is addressing the servant, the servant, as the Davidic Messiah fits well in this context. Notice also your verbs in verse five. What are your tenses of your verbs? In Hebrew, they're imperfects. Some of yours are gonna be translated with a, a present imperfect. Some are gonna be translated with a future tense. It could say something very much akin to this. Behold, you will call a nation that you do not know. You, the Messiah, will call a nation that you do not know, us Gentiles to salvation. A nation that did not know you shall run to you for salvation because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Great. Jared, thanks for all that. What does that mean? A lot of Christians have this story, and, and I, I love to hear this story. I uh, hope to have a baptism here pretty soon. You're going to hear something similar to this uh, with one of our our kiddos here at TBC. A lot, of, a lot of kids hear the message of salvation, it goes something like this. You are a sinner, you do things in, that displease God all the time. And if you wanna have a right relationship with God and not spend eternity in hell under eternal, eternal punishment, you need to trust Christ. You have an option today. You can trust Christ and you can go to heaven when you die, be where you are happy, there is enjoyment and there is celebration all around, or you cannot trust Christ and be in or eternal damnation and punishment. And a lot, of, a lot of kids will hear that gospel story, a lot of Christians hear that gospel story, and they turn to salvation out of fear. They trust Christ maybe because they know they, where they don't want to be, rather than where they do want to be in eternity. And that's, and that's good, and there's something healthy about that when it comes to um, sharing the gospel and comes to doctrine of salvation. But there's something much deeper than that. We're not just called to a place in eternity. We're called to a person. When you go back and you read verse five in this context, I want you to pay attention to these, to these pronouns. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. To who are we running? To who do believers run to? This is a relationship that's depicted. We don't trust Christ simply because there's gonna be a great banquet in eternity. 
with an abundance of food and wine, and we will always be celebrating and, and joyful with the angels and all the saints in glory. We trust Christ because it's a relationship with a person, a Savior, Jesus. There's a relational, personal element that is being offered to us in this invitation to grace. And, and here's, what I'm, here's what I'm trying to say in all this. If you, just, if you just went back and read verses one through three of Isaiah 55, many of us would be inclined to trust Christ simply to be a part of the biggest party that the world has ever known. But when you keep reading in verses four and five, you find out that salvation, the invitation to grace, is deeply personal. There's a relationship that we're being invited to, not just a table. It's not just finding happiness when we trust Christ, it's finding holiness. We're not just coming to a party in chapter 55, we're coming to a person. Grace is so preferable because grace is deeply personal, and the invitation is not just to the king's table, the invitation is to the king's presence and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As uh, Orthodox Christians, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And it goes something like this. God graciously chose to reveal himself to people through the three distinct persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity says that God is one in essence, but he is three distinct persons. And because of the Trinity, it's because of the orthodox teaching of the Trinity that believers can know and worship God in his persons, but not in his essence. We can know God because he has made himself known through Father, Son, and Spirit. We cannot know God in his essence of sovereignty, omnipresence, and omnipotence. We know nothing about that in our finite human existence. We can know an infinite God because he has personally made himself known through the person of Jesus Christ. In order to be known by persons, he had to reveal himself in persons, three persons of the Trinity. And so God condescended in his grace to us to make himself known. He became lovingly near that we might find him if we seek for him and if we call out to him. We can turn to him and trust him. For Israel, the language is return to God your Savior knowing that he will have compassion on us. But I want you to notice uh, the promises that are given here. Look at uh, verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that may, he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly Pardon, abundant pardon there. Again, this is a uh, difficult word, phrase to translate. Just as many translations as there are, or phrases as there are translations, English translations. Um, he pardons repeatedly. He causes himself to pardon multiplied over, over and over again. God never stops pardoning us by his grace. He never stops showing us forgiveness because of who he is and being invited to his table. How is that, how is that possible? I mean, just, just stop and think about what's happening in Isaiah 55. The servant king comes and he offers a gracious invitation to his table for sinners 
For those who have rebelled against him, who are idolatrous, who worship other gods when they should worship him, over and over again commanded, told that this would, judgment would happen to them if they don't obey him, and yet they still reject him, how is it possible now that the king is offering free salvation at his banquet table when all they deserve is condemnation and judgment? I think, I think the best answer is uh, Isaiah 57. So hold your place there, just turn over two chapters and look down at verse three. This is the, at least this is the best I can come up with from Isaiah. Isaiah 57, verse three. He, he's talking to the, the people that are invited to the banquet in chapter 55. But you draw near, you sons of a sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer, and the loose woman, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifices. How is it, how is it possible that these people are invited to the table of the king? Look down at, at verse 12. I will declare your unrighteousness in your deeds, but they will not profit you when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. Verse 15. You might highlight this verse in your Bible if you underline or highlight in your, in your text. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. What would you what would you expect the high and lifted up one to say to idolaters and to unfaithful Israel? What is the text setting us up for here? Judgment, rightful condemnation. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and a holy place. And also with him, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Who's invited to the high and lofty place of the king? Only those who have been brought low. Only those with a contrite heart. How is it possible that sinners, idolaters, rebellious, stiff-necked Israel can be invited to the table of the king because that's all there's left. There is nobody else. Outside of the holiness and the loftiness of God, every single one of us falls short. Every single one of us. Here's the invitation. Every single one of us doesn't deserve a seat at the table of God. And yet, he invites the lowly of heart the crushed in spirit, the destitute, the poor, the broken. 
those whose hearts are fixed upon God. How, how, can this, how can the cross ever make sense? We wonder why this is foolishness to the world, but wisdom to God, right? And then we get these passages in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. None of us would have come up with this on our own because none of us understand grace apart from the personal work of Jesus Christ. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What do we do with Isaiah 55? Here's what I want you to remember. Number one, grace upends everything in life. Grace transforms and upends everything. It softens the hardest heart. It bends the stiffest neck to the voice and the glory of God that we would never choose on our own and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Grace upends everything. The Christian conception of grace is totally different from every other religion. Last week we said Christianity is the unreligion of all the religions in the world. In Christianity, we are not invited to a system. We are not working our way to God. In Christianity, we have a God of grace, a God who has worked his way down to us in condescending favor. John 1, verse 17 is a passage that we're gonna end this series on, and it says this as a prequel. For the law was given to Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that passage does not mean that Moses was void of grace. It doesn't mean that the law was void of grace. It's simply giving you two mediators of two different covenants that are completely different from one another. The law came through Moses, the new covenant and grace came through Jesus. Grace upends everything because Jesus' incarnation, becoming a man to save man, upends everything. You know, I've, I've probably shared this quote with you before, I, I, I think I have. Have you heard this statement from Bono, you two, about the grace of God? Listen to this, what he says. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma, you know? What you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It is clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe, Bono says, and I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that as you reap, so you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like. The consequences of your actions, which in my case is a very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of really bad stuff. Bono says, I'd be in big trouble if karma was gonna be my final judge. I'd be in deep stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but he says, I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Grace upends everything in salvation, the invitation to Christ. Number two, grace does have a condition. It takes a contrite heart. In Psalm 51, we learn very, something very, very key to this whole idea of grace. 
and that is this. To the broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Grace will look favorably where the world looks terribly. Grace will look upon the lowness of man and see something that is of high value beyond anything else. Grace will identify the broken in spirit and the contrite heart as the person who is finally ready for the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ. This is the person who has stopped trying, who has stopped working his way to significance, who has stopped using himself for significance in an identity. Grace comes to the person with a broken and a contrite heart at the bottom of the pit with nowhere else to turn except to Jesus Christ for life, except to his grace for significance and identity, and except to him for everlasting life. The invitation is clear. Come. Buy. You who have no money, something that you could never purchase because I've purchased it for you. Come and drink, you who are thirsty. You who hunger for righteousness, I have solid food for you to eat. And it's all through the grace of Jesus Christ. You've got to respond to the invitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the, the grace of Christ and the invitation to salvation that is so clearly depicted for us, not only in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that grace through him upends everything. It is so different. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We ask that we would have the humble and contrite hearts to receive it, uh, to believe it, and to walk in it as the motivation for living a godly life. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us that we could not do for ourselves. And we ask that your grace would continually transform and soften our hearts to be used as instruments for your glory. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.